So this is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with just the zoo of us. And today I'm talking to a new friend. Today I have Charlotte Hacker. Say hi, Charlotte. Hi, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be talking to you and talking about the awesome animal that we're doing today. I'm really excited because this is a really cool one that I think people are going to be super psyched to hear more about. But before we really uh, sink our claws into this animal, um, I'd like to hear a little bit about you. So why don't you introduce yourself for our friends? Sure. So my name is Charlotte. I am a PhD student at Duquesne University, which is a smaller university in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I have one of the coolest jobs, I think, in the world. I get to study snow leopards, which is kind of something that I fell into after, you know, kind of years of, of doing conservation work in various capacities with different animals. I previously, before snow leopards, did elephants, and before that for my undergraduate at Wilkes University, which is a smaller school on the eastern end of Pennsylvania, um, I did squirrels. So <laughs> I've kind of done a little, you know, kind of gone from really small to really big, and now kind of studying this really cool, elusive predator that lives in the mountains of Central Asia. That's kind of living the dream, right? Oh my gosh. It's, it's, <laughs> it's crazy because in undergrad, when I thought of my job, I thought I would have this really perfect straight line of getting from point A to point B and my career and everything's just been lots of peaks and valleys and everything else in between, but it's made it way more interesting and a lot more fun. <laughs> I don't think anybody would ever describe their career path as linear, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't met a single person that, that hasn't experienced the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So like, what does your work with snow leopards look like? Are you like out in the field, like watching them where they live or what, like, what does that entail? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate because I get to do a little bit of everything. I am a non-invasive conservation geneticist. And so what that basically means is that I'm really interested in snow leopard DNA. I can use the DNA from snow leopards to answer a lot of questions. I like to tell people that it's, it's kind of like a crime scene investigation for snow leopards. So a lot of those same techniques that you might see in those TV shows were doing the same thing. And with that entails getting their DNA in a, in a manner that doesn't disturb them. So we go into snow leopard habitat. Most of my field sites are out on the Tibetan Plateau in China. It's where I do most of my work. Um, and we look for their feces. Or we call it scat. That's the polite, the polite term <laughs> we use for it. And there's DNA in that scat because as the scat moves through the digestive tract, it picks up all of the epithelial cells alongside the tract. And then we have snow leopard DNA to work with so we can extract the DNA from that sample and then do various analyses to find out all sorts of things about that snow leopard. And when we get multiple scat samples from individual snow leopards, we can start to put together individual genetic profiles. And that gives us an idea of how many different unique individuals are living in an area. Um, and we can do a lot of other really cool things looking at genetic structure and how the landscape may be influencing snow leopard populations and how they're able to move through those landscapes, whether those are natural barriers like mountains or human-caused barriers like roadways and railways. And one of the other cool things we can look at is the DNA of what the snow leopard ate. So just like there's the DNA from the host or the snow leopard, we can also get an idea of what the snow leopard ate by looking at the DNA of its prey that would be also in the scat sample that it ate and digested. And so with that, you know, I'm out in the field collecting scat samples, but then I'm in the lab processing all of that DNA. And so I split my time um, between the United States and China to go and get samples, process them in Beijing. We work with a really amazing research group out there. And then I head back over to the United States to, you know, do a number, another, uh, number of other analyses and 
samples that we have in the lab and processing those as well. Oh my gosh, that's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So I I really like this idea of like collecting the data that you need, but almost sort of like unbeknownst to the snow leopard, right? Like the snow leopard's just going on about their day and they don't really have to like stop what they're doing. Yeah, and, and it works for us because snow leopards are so difficult to find. But what they leave behind is easier. So finding that scat, if you know where to look, it's pretty easy to find. But finding that snow leopard itself is, is much harder. So they have historically been more difficult to study because they are so elusive. That makes sense. And that's kind of what they're trying to do, right? Like they're just doing a good job of what they're trying yeah. to do. <laughs> they don't want you <laughs> exactly, to see them. Yeah. I know that you're working with like what they're leaving behind, but have you had a chance to like actually see them? Like have you spotted them in the wild? Not yet. So I always joke that dozens of snow leopards have probably seen me and I probably could have been looking right at one um, and not have known it. They are so well camouflaged with their environment. It's insane. Uh, What I like to do with people, it's kind of like a Where's Waldo of snow leopards. So you can just Google that and find any number of pictures where the snow leopard is kind of right front and center of the photo, but they're so difficult to see because they are so well adapted to blend into these environments. I did see my first wild snow leopard um, a couple summers ago, but unfortunately it was deceased. It had died of natural causes. So I've yet to see a live wild one kind of doing doing its thing and, and living in its natural habitat. But my previous work in zoological institutions, I've been lucky to work with a few. Oh, I bet that was really amazing because my only experience with snow leopards is seeing them on videos. And all those videos, of course, yeah. always come from zoos or, you know, the the odd BBC like Planet Earth segment they'll do on snow leopards or something. Yeah. It's, and those guys had to sit out there for for months to get that footage. It's amazing how difficult it is to actually see them in the wild. They'll be out there for months and they'll get like 30 seconds of footage. <laughs> right. And they're super excited about it, right? And then we're all excited about it. Whenever we hear about new footage, everyone just kind of, you know, grab, grapples onto it. So I'm hoping every time I go into the field, I kind of cross my fingers. And I've seen a lot of really interesting and cool other wildlife. And my team, my research team and I always start the day. It's kind of a joke now where we sit at breakfast and we say, all right, today's the day. We're going to see one. And it never quite happens, but we stay hopeful. So <laughs> <laughs> Anything but, like you end up seeing all these other cool animals except for the one you're looking for. Exactly. (laughs) That's really cool. Well, so for people that maybe live in an area where snow leopards are not commonly kept in captivity and may have never like seen one um, and aren't very familiar with it, like how would you describe a snow leopard and how it is different from other cats? So snow leopards are in the genus Panthera, which is the group of big cats. And they're actually the smallest of the big cats in that genus. We're not really 100% sure of how big they get, but they're sitting at about 70 pounds or so, um, anywhere from like 70 to 100 pounds. So they're really not that big. What makes them look so big is the fact that they're so fluffy. So they're meant to live in these very cold, wintry, snowy, very high-winded environments. And so with that, they've adapted to have this really dense, long fur. Their fur is about four inches long, and it's incredibly, incredibly dense. And then they're characterized by these black rosettes that are kind of put up against a, a gray or a white kind of brownish background um, of their actual pelt or their their coat. And then they have these really super long, great tails that might be my favorite part about them. Snow leopard tails. <laughs> um, Snowleopard tails are about the length of their body. They're really long. So that kind of serves as a rudder, or you can think of it like on a boat to help them navigate through the mountains and kind of keep them on balance. Um, And then it also serves a number of other purposes, like communication with other snow leopards. And um, you'll often see the tail kind of wrapped around, like to think of it as like a little blanket, little insulator. (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) And then they have these huge feet, kind of like built in snowshoes. So they're adapted to walk across these harsh terrains with a lot of, of snowfall. And so they've gotten these huge, huge, huge 
paws that that help them to do that. The fluffiness of their fur makes me think, you know how with either big fluffy dogs or with Persian cats or something that like a lot of their volume is made up of fluffy fur. It makes me wonder what a snow leopard would look like if it was just drenched in water. And like, if it just like, for whatever reason, maybe like just got out of a bath or something and it was dripping wet. Like, I wonder how different they would look. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because I mean, when I even even when I see them in person still, I, I guess it's just this idea that they're these fierce predators and they're in the big cat category. But I think actual body mass is, is pretty low. It's just all that fur that, that pops out. So I'm sure they'd look pretty, pretty sorry if they <laughs> were wet and all that illusion was taken away from them. Yeah. Poor things. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I do love their fluffy tail because I've seen a lot of pictures of them kind of like holding their tail in their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why this is a thing that I've seen in so many pictures. I don't know how common this is for them to do that, but it's really cute. Yeah, I'm not really sure why they do it. It might just be a lot of those pictures when they're from different zoological facilities. I don't know if it's a behavior that they've just kind of like picked up and they're just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to put my tail in my mouth or <laughs> If there is some some reasoning behind it, but um, it's cute when they do it. <laughs> yeah, my cat at home, who is a tabby cat, he likes uh-huh. to chase his tail and catch it. And then he will just kind of like grab it and have it in his mouth for like a split second before he wants to play with it again. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes me wonder if like maybe they're just being playful. <laughs> they could be. I mean, they definitely can be. There's some really great footage of cubs with a mother and they're all kind of batting each other around and having fun. And then there's some footage of them playing with different enrichment items. That's a big thing in zoological institutions is providing opportunities for snow leopards to be snow leopards. And so with that, you introduce enrichment. So these items that give snow leopards opportunities to engage in species appropriate behaviors and things like boomer balls, which are these huge, large kind of plastic, really durable balls are, are one thing that we would give the snow leopards I worked with at one point and they would just go crazy for them. They loved it. And so they definitely can be playful and running around the exhibit and batting it back and forth and all that stuff. Oh, they're so good. I love them. (laughs) Well, I feel like now that we've had a little bit of a primer on what a snow leopard is, we can start talking about our ratings, which if this is your first time listening to this particular show, it's kind of our little thing that we do. We, We rate and review species of animals. The first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness, which we define as physical adaptations that let an animal kind of do a good job at the things it's trying to do, right? For a snow leopard, this would be things like hunting prey and mm-hmm. staying hidden and stuff like that. So for effectiveness, for things that are like built into its body that let it do those things well, what would you give the snow leopard? So out of 10, I'm going to give the snow leopard a nine. That's pretty so good. <laughs> pretty high score. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said before, they're so well blended with their environment that their ability to not be seen <laughs> It's pretty remarkable, and I think that that aids them a lot in terms of being able to sneak up on prey, because um, that that element of surprise is really what's what's necessary. And then again, these like big paws, being able to walk across these landscapes, traverse these very rugged climates, that tail acting as a rudder. And one of the things that I'm really interested from a, a research point of view is the adaptation to high altitude in terms of what actually allows snow leopards to live in these environments with really low oxygen. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So as you move up in elevation, right, you have less oxygen in the air. Um, and snow leopards are living anywhere from, in Mongolia, it's a little bit flatter. So they, they're found across 12 different countries in Central Asia. 
it's a lot of different habitats. Some of those are at lower elevations than others. So in Mongolia, you might have a snow leopard that is at about 2,000 meters. And then you have mountains like the Himalayas or the, the top of the Tibetan Plateau, where snow leopards are sitting at about 5,500 meters. And so there's a huge difference in terms of how much oxygen that's actually available to them. And so I'm broadly interested in you know, how does their body deal with that? How do they thrive in those environments? And are there genetic mechanisms? Can we can we figure that out by looking at their DNA? Have you guys been able to see any sort of evidence of adaptations, like maybe something in their lungs or like something in their respiratory system that lets them like mm -hmm. stay breathing? Yeah. So one of the things that um, our lab has looked at previously is the efficiency of hemoglobin picking up oxygen and dropping it off, right? That's one of the basic adaptations. If you're better at picking up oxygen, then you can do better with environments with less oxygen. You can hold on to it a little bit better in your bloodstream. Um, and so we had done a study where we were comparing snow leopard to other big cats, and we were most interested in tiger. That's actually the the big cat that snow leopards are most related to. That surprises mm. a lot of people. It's wow. not the common leopard. It's not the clouded leopard. It's not any other kind of leopard. <laughs> snow leopards are their own separate species um, from the common leopard, and they're actually most genetically related to the tiger. And so by making these comparisons, we generally do it with with the tiger, and then we'll do it with some other species as well. But we found that there's no difference in in oxygen affinity with the snow leopard compared to to the tiger. And then we also um, are interested in looking at other mechanisms that might be responsible. And while there could be some things, like maybe lung capacity is a little bit larger, there could be some of those things. What we're thinking is that it has more to do with genes and how they regulate the hypoxia pathway. So when you're in an area with less oxygen, your body has to adapt. You know, when we go into the field, for example, I budget two days just to be sick and miserable. I'm pretty lucky. I don't get that sick. I get a headache and and I, I don't feel well, but we have had field members have to go to the hospital and, and all sorts of other things just because that high altitude really wreaks havoc on your body until it can adjust. And one of the ways it adjusts is through this hypoxia pathway. And so we're thinking that the genetic regulation of that pathway in snow leopards is a little bit different. And that that's actually what's primarily responsible for them being able to function and thrive at these high altitudes. And so we're interested in looking at that and then interested in seeing if that varies among different populations of snow leopards. So for snow leopards living in Mongolia at 2,000 meters, do they have the same adaptations in that hypoxic pathway um, versus snow leopards that live at the top of the Tibetan Plateau at 5,500 meters? Wow. I hadn't even thought of that. Because when you think of something that lives high up in the mountains, you think about, okay, it probably has to adapt to the cold. Right. But you don't think of it also having to adapt to the actual air. Yeah. And I think knowledge of how snow leopards can deal with low levels of oxygen will help us better predict how they may adapt to climate change. They live in mountainous environments are extremely fragile and the Tibetan plateau in and of itself is really kind of at high risk for these negative effects from climate change. And then the mountains only go so high, right? So snow leopards can only go so high and eventually other organisms may move up in altitude as well as the climate warms and that habitat shifts upward. Um, and so seeing how snow leopards are able to to move up or not will be of interest in, in being able to predict how, how they're going to be able to adapt to changes in the environmental landscape because of things like climate change. Yeah, that makes sense. You had mentioned that there are like a lot of challenges that people face getting up to those high altitudes. Is there any sort of like possibility that like looking at how snow leopards handle it could affect how people handle it? Like thinking about things like, oh, if we're going to be climbing up into the mountains, mm -hmm. then like maybe let's look at how snow leopards do it. Yeah, I mean, there's actually been way more research on this and specifically with the hypoxia pathway with the Tibetan community 
in Asia, uh, which is kind of how a lot of my background research, my work with snow leopards, has to do with looking at, at humans and what's been studied in terms of differences in the genetics of humans that are um, have lived for, for centuries on the Tibetan Plateau specifically. So for about 2,000 years, a little bit over 2,000 years, Tibetans have been living in these really harsh landscapes and they've adapted accordingly. And part of that adaptation is these genetic underpinnings that allow them to do really well in areas that don't have as much oxygen. And that's similar with other communities that live in, in the Andes and South America, all sorts of places. So it's kind of backwards where we're using what we know about human health to try to translate that to how does that, how can we make that work in terms of predicting adaptations that animals may be able to use? How can we use what we know about human health and adaptation and apply it to conservation initiatives surrounding animals that are living in the same landscapes? That makes sense. Because I think sometimes people have an idea that like evolution, it's where it is now. And this is just like the end of it, maybe just mm -hmm. like that the present state is like the final result of evolution, but it's still happening. Like, yeah, people yeah. are still changing and, mm -hmm. and animals are still changing. So when they're hunting their prey, when a snow leopard is like hunting their prey, are they going for like ambush, like you hide and you wait for the prey to get close and then you jump out? Or are they trying mm -hmm. to like chase their prey down? Like what are they going for? One of the hunting mechanisms that snow leopards deploy is usually attacking from above. Oh, so they're up in the trees. But, so they're just above, like they're in the mountains, but above the species that they're hunting. Oh, So sure, they might sure. be on like a rocky outcrop that's kind of, you know, and they're just kind of watching a herd of, of blue sheep, which are actually more of a goat than they are a sheep. But we didn't know that at the time we named them. But oh. anyway. <laughs> I probably showed a little bit of my mountain ignorance right now because I live in Florida. <laughs> I mean, the tree, the tree line in general, snowbirds typically live above the tree line, but but there are occasions where where there are trees in some snow leopard habitat. But I don't, they don't much get up into them. But yeah, snow leopards are, are going to kind of pounce from above, and and they usually not necessarily lie in wait, but but they take their time right until they can get the right opportunity. One of the reasons why I gave them a nine as opposed to a 10 is because the hunting for carnivores in general, not that great. I think we always look at predators as being these really fierce, successful hunters, but they're typically not. Only about one out of every 10 kills on average is successful. So think about that nine times out of 10, you're exerting everything you have to try to catch a meal and you still don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> high risk, high reward, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but that's this whole idea, you know, of this evolutionary arms race or how these animals are adapting, right? Just like snow leopards need to adapt to be able to, to catch prey and to kill them successfully, the prey need to adapt to be able to get away. So there's this constant kind of back and forth between predators and prey. And, and, and that's what makes some of the dynamics of those relationships so interesting. Okay, so you mentioned that they're they're mostly on rocks and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I, I guess I had this idea in my head that they were climbing, as in climbing trees, you know? But, but now that I'm thinking about it, those big fluffy feet... Um, <laughs> probably a little bit unwieldy for stuff like that, right? Yeah, I think that snowlopers would be pretty clumsy. They might be able to handle it. So like I mentioned before, there, there are several different hoofstock or ungulate species that live in snowlopard habitat that snowlopards could eat. And blue sheep are typically up in the mountains. So they are going to be on these like really tiny little ledges, kind of bouncing around from point A to point B. Um, whereas our golly are typically more in the valleys and they feed on different grassland and, and they they kind of stick to more flattened areas. And so snow leopards catching blue sheep, they're much better at that. They're much better at racing through these mountains on these little ledges and, and going up at you know elevational gradients very quickly than they are running flat to catch an argali. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why we think there's there's a lot more blue sheep in snow leopard diet as opposed to argali. There's also a lot more blue sheep in general than argali population wise, but but for snow leopards I think they're gonna be way better at catching those those animals that are 
running through the mountains as opposed to the animals that are kind of on flatter land in the valleys. Just imagining them kind of stomping around with their big old snowshoes is <laughs> clumsy and <laughs> <laughs> that's really charming to me. I like the I like the image. Does the fur like affect like the the padding of the fur on their feet? Does that affect the tracks that they leave behind? Yeah, so snow leopards, um, when we actually find tracks in the wild or kind of these paw prints, uh, these pug marks, they're pretty easy to identify that it's a snow leopard. Um, they're really kind of fat and flat. So whenever you find one, it's pretty easy to distinguish it from other carnivores in the area, such as a wolf or, um, you know, in some areas, snow leopards now overlap with common leopards. And we think that that has something to do with climate change, that common leopards are able to kind of move up into snow leopard habitat. And so those are a little bit tougher to distinguish, but for the most part, we'll see more of that overlap in the future, but, but we don't really see too much of it right now. Oh, I hadn't even thought that there could be overlap between uh, snow leopards and common leopards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something that we, there's a few NGOs, really amazing, they've done amazing work in China over the last couple decades or so, and they captured some amazing footage of, with camera traps. So taking photos, another non-invasive technique that we often use. So the, the camera has a sensor on it the animal walks by and it takes a picture and then you go back and you get the the sd card or maybe if you're lucky and have enough funding you get one that where they automatically download to your computer oh, that's bougie <laughs> yeah. but with that they've captured a lot of amazing footage of common leopards and snow leopards in the same habitat um, and that's becoming increasingly common and we think that that's because common leopards are encroaching into snow leopard habitat because of climate change and these habitat changes that are happening relatively quickly. I've heard a lot about how leopards are kind of generalists, you know, like they're pretty good at doing a lot of things. Um, and it seems like the snow leopard is more of a specialist. So is a snow leopard able to compete with a leopard or maybe the other way around? Like how is the competition there? It seems like there would be some friction. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's just one of the unanswered questions right now. And there's tons of those surrounding snow leopards in general. But I think that particularly particularly looking at how these carnivores are, these sympatric carnivores, right? So these carnivores that live in the same habitat together, especially when it's something that's relatively new and understudied. From what we can tell, we're expecting common leopards to outcompete snow leopards, that they will be able to exploit better resources. They're a little bit bigger. Um, and snow leopards in general are really shy. I don't think that people realize how timid <laughs> snow leopards actually are. You know, there's never been a report of a snow leopard killing a human in the wild. And it's one of the reasons why snow leopards are unfortunately relatively easy to kill and in retribution for things like livestock killings and, and other things, um, kind of that conflict with human side or dimension of, of their natural history. Common leopards are, you know, much more um, intense. And I think when we think of big cats, you know, we put a lot of stereotypes on them, but the common leopards kind of fit that mold of being a little bit more, you know, quote unquote, ferocious. Um, and so they will fight snow leopards off of kills. Um, there will be issues in terms of dietary plasticity or, or, you know, will snow leopards be able to eat different things because common leopards are going to take a lot of their prey base. And those are just all unanswered questions that are kind of on the table right now that we need to work quickly to resolve. Wow. I'll be interested to see how that turf war kind of plays out. It's just unfortunate, but it's something that, you know, is a reality that at least we're a little bit ahead of in terms of being able to to start laying the groundwork to investigate that more. Wow. So maybe a, another angle to think about their, I guess, hunting prowess would be our next category, which is ingenuity, which for us is behavioral adaptations that let an animal do a good job, whether it's with their instincts or just something that they've picked up on that, that they do a good job of um, like solving problems they encounter on a daily basis or, you know, navigating uh, hazards in their environment. So for the snow leopard, what would you give them for ingenuity out of 10? 
So I'm going to give them a seven. Okay. Um, and I say that there's still a lot of questions about what a smell of day actually looks like and the problems that they are encountering on a regular basis. But one of the big ones that we know is a huge threat to species persistence at the moment are problems that are largely human driven. So as I mentioned before, things like climate change, how are small birds going to be able to adapt? Can they adapt? They're kind of these specialists, you know, they have some generalist tendencies and they may be able to exploit other prey, things like that. But that's largely unknown as to how they're going to be able to adapt and solve these problems that are brought on by climate change. And we are, you know, there's concern that things like common leopards are going to to outcompete snow leopards or other species that might be in the area. One of the big problems um, that's another issue is that of conflict with humans. Across snow leopard range, the bulk of the humans living in that habitat are dependent on pastoralism. So they're owning, a, they own a lot of livestock and they either, that's either their primary income source or it's at minimum sustenance to feed themselves and them, their families. And so when snow birds um, come in to that habitat and, and whether or not they cannot, you know, typically we know them to prefer wild ungulates, but maybe they, they just can't catch a break. They can't make a kill. You know, they're tired or there's, you know, prey depletion in the area of local native prey. And so they can't find anything. And so that livestock is looking really good, right? <laughs> That's an easy meal. So snowbird goes in, kills the livestock, and then they'll feed off the carcass for up to a week after that. And so the herders, you know, have this opportunity to eliminate the threat from coming back. And so they they can get rid of the snow leopard, unfortunately, by killing it. And that is just something that, um, you know, when something is threatening your livelihood and your income and your family's well-being, you know, you're going to want to do something about it. And for snow leopards, because they're so timid and shy, it's relatively easy to take care of that problem. So while they are hard to find, if you know where to look and you come across one, and these herders have been living, you know, amongst these big cats for their entire lives, so they're they're literally experts on these species, then that's something that, unfortunately, snow leopards don't really stand a chance against because they typically just freeze. <laughs> Like I said, there's been no previous records of, of snow leopards attacking humans or killing humans in the wild, I should say. So there's there's really been, you know, in, in terms of that problem solving, not that snow leopards necessarily need to get more ferocious or anything, um, but that is something that they're they're having to deal with on a regular basis now. So maybe it's something that they just haven't really had time to figure out yet? I mean, retaliatory killing ranges in terms of severity across snow leopard habitat in some areas it's worse than others and so I don't necessarily think it's something that species-wide all of a sudden you know only the really bold you know these personality traits that we sometimes can attribute to animals only the really bold snow leopards are going to survive you know or or those that don't target livestock or whatever um, it may be but I think that it is something that we what we need to do is to stop snow leopards from having to eat livestock in the first place or um, implement non-lethal predator deterrence for stopping snowbirds from from eating livestock in the first place. And so that's one thing that we try to do is, you know, testing things like flashing lights and sound and things of that nature just to keep predators away from livestock in the first place. And then snowbirds don't have to deal with that issue anymore um, and making sure that they have wild prey to eat that's abundant. Um, and then that way that protects, you know, herder livelihoods, local economies, as well as the species that are wild and live in that area. That would be a win-win. Yes. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> I know in a, in a perfect world, in an ideal world, you'd be able to just snap your fingers and make it happen, but right. not always the case. A little more complex than that, for sure. Yeah. So it, I feel like in 
media in like movies or TV shows or something like that, when you see any big cat depicted, it's always a sort of antagonistic force. Like Mm -hmm. it's always like stalking and prowling and then like at a climactic moment, they'll attack. Yeah. I feel like this is not the snow leopards vibe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. Snow leopards don't even roar. Really? Um, yeah, that's a whole. I, when I tell people that, they're like, "What?" And I'm like, <laughs> um, they actually have what we call a yowl. Oh uh, dear. And we rarely hear them vocalize in general, um, or they don't vocalize that much in general. Usually, it's it's kind of restricted to breeding season. There may be communication otherwise, but yeah, if you actually look up what a snow leopard sounds like when it's yowling, it's intense, but it's just kind of annoying. It's not scary. <laughs> it's just like ugh, like you know, this like very kind of long, drawn out yowl. That's the bulk of it. They they don't roar. They don't you know make themselves known. You know, like a, like a lion would or anything like that. You're not going to be seeing them um, depicted as the sort of main villain in any sort of I don't heroic chase (laughs) I could see them maybe being like a kind of like in a sneaky role Mm -hmm. they're kind of the radar and and that sort of thing I think I just remembered the only time I've ever seen a snow leopard depicted honestly I was gonna say depicted as a villain but I think the only time I've ever seen a snow leopard like really like presented as a character and it was in Uh one of the kung fu panda movies (laughs) yes yeah do you remember oh you're right do you remember that Kung Fu yeah, Panda yeah, movie? Yeah. He's like, but he's like yeah. a big, scary, tough guy. Yeah, so, so full disclosure, I've only seen it once and I watched it in Chinese. So oh. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I saw, like, I saw it. But the plot, think, you know, certain parts of the plot, I may not have fully caught on to. But yeah, yeah, he's kind of like a, a big presence and like a big, you know, not a force, kind of like a quiet force in that movie. Yeah, but I remember him being the bad guy, right? I think so. Oh, no. Well, now I have to watch it in English. I love those movies so much, and now I feel like I'm doing them such a disservice by misremembering <laughs> the plot. But I'm like, I'm thinking that's probably the only movie or anything that I've seen a snow leopard in. I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I can't think of any either. It's just the one there's- guy. And I can't even remember his name. It's just the guy from Kung Fu Panda. And, like, I'm trying to think of... So there's a lot of great documentaries. Oh, yeah. Like, them, right? Like, these nature documentaries, especially that, that have come out in the last five years or so, but... Yeah, in terms of cartoons, I'm not, not 100% sure. I want to say Disney Nature did one of those cutesy little documentaries, and it was the Born in China one. Is that the one? Yeah. Yep. So Born in China, yeah, followed. There was um, a female snow leopard and her two cubs in there. Um, yeah, in, in an area of China that I think we, we as snow leopard biologists, I'm speaking for all of us, but um, it's like snow leopard paradise. <laughs> it really is this amazing landscape, and it's highly continuous habitat which is pretty rare these days and so that particular site where that footage was shot is just it's incredible incredible snow leopard habitat really prime good good habitat Ah, uh, that's a good transition into our last category for the snow leopard which is aesthetics and this is purely just your totally biased opinion and i think i know what you're gonna say but that's all right <laughs> um <laughs> I know that they're hard to see, but when you do see them, what would you give them for aesthetics? A 10. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, they're just the most, I think that they're one of those species that every time I see them, I just gasp a little bit. They're they're just, I'm just in awe of them. I think that, yes, aesthetically, they're aesthetically pleasing, right? They, but to think of what they're actually capable of doing in the environments that they live in, and they just kind of are this very widely known, recognizable, charismatic animal, I think, because of that, which is 
both good and bad, right? Because I think that animals like snow leopards, these these charismatic large mammals, and I experienced the same thing working with elephants. They think that you can really easily make the public care. They've probably seen a snow leopard in a picture or a movie before. They're somewhat familiar with them. Snow leopard print, right? That in and of itself, it's like this pattern that we've all seen before. And so I think building those emotional connections to snow leopards and convincing people why they need saving just purely from an aesthetic point is, is kind of easy. But the flip side of that is, yeah, snow leopards are really aesthetically pleasing and they are of very high value in the wildlife trade and in the illegal wildlife market. So, I mean, I think even as late as the 1960s, you could buy a snow leopard pelt in the United States. They were like advertised in magazines and things like that. Um, and so they've become a very lucrative animal and they remain a very lucrative animal. Those pelts are still extremely valuable. And so there's there's a flip side of being recognizable and sought after, right? You can make people care about conservation, but then you also have people that want to exploit that, uh, which has been a challenge for their species survival as well. Mm-hmm. Since you just mentioned their pelts, you know, it would it would make sense that people would be interested in their fur because of how, you know, we've talked about that with a lot of other animals that like their beauty ends up being their downfall. Yeah. But uh, is their fur soft? It looks soft. I have only touched a live snow leopard once. It was sedated under um, a veterinary procedure. Um, it was totally safe and I was all the training and everything to, to do that. But we work with the local community quite a bit. And that's important because the local community, they are equal stakeholders in, in navigating a lot of snow leopard conservation work. They're the ones that have to live among them, with them. They are huge reservoirs of local ecological knowledge. And with building those relationships, it's great because you get to talk to them and you kind of get this dialogue going and it makes working there easier. But we interviewed somebody who just very openly like showed us a pelt. It was just like, oh, I've, I've got this snow leopard pelt. Do you want to touch it? And it's kind of this weird, you're like, ooh how'd you get that pelt? You know, but we don't ask questions. We kind of just make a note of it. But the pelt that I felt was um, extremely soft. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think that, but that pelt was very, very old and hadn't really been taken care of and then things like that. So, but yeah, fluffy, I think fluffy fur translates into very soft fur as well. Um, in this particular case. I was wondering if like, because with a lot of other animals, like the, sometimes they look soft and then you touch them and they're not okay. soft at all. <laughs> and they're like really coarse and wiry and stuff. So yeah. I'm always wondering, I'm like, are they actually soft or do they just look soft? Yeah. In my opinion, they're soft. Oh, I like that. That that makes me feel good when I see them wrapped up in their own like tail <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, they're so cozy. <laughs> <laughs> I, and that totally tracks because like I feel like a snow leopard when I see one, it, which is always in a video because I live in the south and we do not live anywhere where it would be even remotely thinkable to keep a, a snow leopard anywhere. Like you would you would have to keep it in a fridge year round. Like, yeah, it never gets cold enough. It's very hot here. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little just be I'm so I'm in Pittsburgh, but um, yeah, I'm a little jealous that I, I, I enjoy warm weather myself. But, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you have snow leopards and we don't. So right, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. get to keep snow yeah. leopards in your zoos and we don't. So uh, we get to we have to miss out on a lot of cool animals because it's way too way too hot here. But when I see one on a video or in a picture, I feel like they never quite look like I expect them to look, you know, like you have this idea in your head of how a, a, a big cat looks. And then uh-huh. you see a snow leopard and you're like, that's not exactly what I thought they looked like. <laughs> They have a a very unique face. It's a face that doesn't look like other big cats. Well, it's kind of, they have kind of a small head. Yeah, uh, don't they? Relative to their body. Their legs are a little bit shorter than most people expect. In general, they're they're a little bit smaller, I think, than most people expect. I think there's kind of these biases that we have. And and I, you know, where they come from is 
is a whole other topic of interest. But, you know, in your head, you kind of have this idea of given the characteristics you know about an animal or the cartoons, pictures, whatever you've seen. And then I think when you actually see one in real life and you're kind of like, oh, that's that. That's what that looks like. like. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I saw a giant panda in a zoo for the first time, and I had never seen one in, in person in my life. And yeah. I was like, they're so tiny. <laughs> they're yeah. so little. <laughs> they really are. And and when you think about species like that, too, and especially these animals that are kind of ambassadors for their environments or their countries, right? So the giant panda in China and being this ambassador for bamboo forests. And yeah, like they, they are important animals for that purpose. But then it's interesting to kind of dive deeper in terms of the roles they play in their environments and how they fit into this whole ecosystem. And it's interesting to see which animals kind of pop out as being, you know, the, and usually they are the ones that are more interesting to look at or the ones that we have ideas about or we've seen in textbooks or picture books or whatever. But um, to, to see which species kind of rise to the top of that, of, of humans being interested, naturally interested, curious, and then what we assign personality-wise or whatever to those those animals, I think is, is kind of interesting. Yeah. You had mentioned that people assume that, the snow leopard would be more closely related to the common leopard, but my thought would have been the lynx, another like ah. cold weather cat. Like uh-huh. that would have been my thought with it. It would have been related to like a lynx or something like that. Yeah, no, they actually, um, so Eurasian lynx overlap with snow leopards. Um, I've seen a few in the wild, which has been awesome. We, we get their scat samples all the time. So one, one of the things we collect these scat samples, but we don't really know what we're, what we have when we collect them. We have to do the genetic film to figure it out. And so one of the cool things that has come out of studying snow leopards is that we're now able to study all of these other carnivores that live with them. Um, and lynx has actually been a huge part of our data analyses. So they have a lot of similar characteristics. Uh, and we're seeing how they exploit their environments differently, niche partitioning and how they're sharing dietary resources and things like that. But yeah, the closest relative outside of the big cat family is actually the clouded leopard for snow leopards. Oh, that's interesting because the clouded leopard is like down in the rainforests, right? This is mm-hmm. very much not a mountain cat. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what is coming to light looking at genetics. So looking at relationships at the molecular level as opposed to morphology or geography or, you know, kind of how we used to deduce relationships between animals it's it's really fascinating hmm. i also did get a funny mental image when you said that like you have to do an analysis on the scat to figure out what it belongs to <laughs> uh-huh. that was really funny to me because i was thinking of you guys like taking scat samples like i don't know what it is yet but i guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah we're just looking for carnivore scat so we're looking for things like bones and hair and and so typically about 30 percent of what we collect is snow leopard so everything else is you know we've gotten lynx and uh, lots of wolf scat and a couple common leopards and palace cats, which a lot of people aren't familiar with. But if you've never, if you don't know what a palace cat is, just Google it. It'll make your day. <laughs> they're so grumpy. I know. They're like the original grumpy cat. They just look so disheveled all the time, but just kind of, uh. yeah. So, you know, and we've also, <laughs> we did one sampling trip and I feel a little embarrassed about it. Not really. It's anyway, um, we pick up bird pellets a lot. So these birds of prey that then regurgitate whatever they haven't digested actually looks quite a bit like carnivore scat. And so now I'm entering this realm of bird diet because we have all of these samples of just pellets from Eurasian eagle owls and falcons and all sorts of other species. So 30% of what we have is snow leopard. And then everything else is just kind of extra that's added to the mix that I also get a chance to kind of explore and study, which is kind of cool. I'm really thrilled to know that that is such an important part of like ongoing legitimate biological research, because I'm thinking about when 
I don't know if this is something that they did in, in the schools that you went to, but in a lot of schools here, something that they'll do during like kids elementary school biology lessons is they'll pull apart the owl pellet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you guys do that? Yeah. So I was in fifth grade, I think. And I, I do remember doing, I thought it was, so when I was little, I was always really fascinated with animals and I was fascinated with things like roadkill or, <laughs> but I was just always interested in like, how does this work? And, and, and specifically interested in kind of like putting together different facets to learn more about ecology. And so I thought the owl pilot thing was the coolest thing ever. And I, I remember this is probably one of the sharpest memories I actually have from elementary school is dissecting an owl pilot. I was kind of grossed out by it because of the smell. It has like a weird yeah. smell to it. But then yeah. once we started to like really get into it and I started finding like mouse bones, then uh-huh. I was into it. I was like, yeah, okay, now I get it. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> and in the past, a lot of the ways that we've studied bird diet is through that morphological analysis. Analysis, so looking at the actual bones, but now finding out that we can do it with DNA and, and figure out a whole plethora of species that have been underrepresented or biodiversity that, that hasn't been accounted for previously because that morphological technique was difficult to find kind of these rare underrepresented species. Um, that's been really cool. So it's just snow leopards are an umbrella species. So the protection of snow leopards protects a lot of other animals. And I think this is just a good example of how you know, we have all of these conservation initiatives for snow leopards, but here's all of the side stuff that also gets to happen with this science, which is kind of cool. I'm glad to know that like the things that they're doing for kids in school are like legitimately like propping people up for like, this is what like a career in biology could look like. Yeah. And I think science can, I mean, I never really knew about that I could do the kind of work that I'm doing as a kid. I never saw like, I didn't really see biologists per se. And I, I definitely didn't see women doing it. I think Jane Goodall was the only female I knew about as a kid. And that just seems so unobtainable to me. But yeah, now it seems that, you know, kind of programs that are, in, you know, in science communication that are introducing people that don't fit this stereotypical science mold, I think is really important. Um, and in Snow Leopard world, in our in our little research world, there are so many just amazing women that are doing a lot of really cool research and getting out into the field and spearheading a lot of really amazing projects. So we're like a super female driven field. And then that's really inspiring to be a part of as well definitely very good to give little girls that sort of idea of like, hey, it's not gross and weird to want to play in the dirt and want to get messy with animals and go have one of these not so stereotypical career paths. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's getting to to talk to kids about it and them seeing someone that looks like them or came from a similar background or whatever it may be. You know, I think it's, I grew up in this really little coastal town in Delaware and um, I, you know, go out to the Tibetan Plateau on a regular basis. And I just all these things that I never thought as a kid, my, you know, my life is way gnarlier than I ever could have pictured as a kid. And it's just insane, like, to think that that's, that's possible now. And I think it's because we've had a lot of really fierce people lead the way ahead of us. And that's inspiring. So that has been awesome. I'm really excited. I feel like I am inspired and I have a deeper um, appreciation for snow leopards. Uh, and and not just for snow leopards, but for like the conservation work that you're doing and, and all that awesome stuff. So as far as like right now and moving forward what kind of projects are you involved in right now or like what are you up to that you want people to know about so everything right now I'm sure for everybody that's kind of dealing with COVID-19 right now for me um, so I actually was living full-time in China until I got evacuated because of COVID in February so right now I am hanging tight (laughs) I am just kind of waiting until I can go back to China that is the plan 
I've been really fortunate to have a, an amazing team there and working with the local community has been an incredible experience and has now been a huge part of our conservation success because the local community that we've trained in scat collections and monitoring are able to keep those studies going while, you know, we're kind of on more of a more of a lockdown and inability to travel, things like that. So I am hopeful to get back over to China and finish processing my samples. We'll answer a lot of cool questions with those data. And then I am hopefully going to be finished with my PhD next summer. And then that'll be kind of on to the next thing, right? Which is super exciting. Emailing a lot of people on looking for postdoc opportunities and and things that, that are going to be kind of the next step that'll, that'll challenge me as a scientist. And, you know, I really just want to be involved with making effective conservation action plans and decisions for species that are at risk. And I love doing that with snow leopards. I hope to be able to continue that in some capacity. So that's just kind of where I'm at now. And we've been able to answer a lot of cool questions already. So I'm really excited to see where the data takes us next. One of my favorite things about being a scientist is that you answer one question and it brawls out into like 10 more. And I think it's that never ending pursuit that I really enjoy the science, you know, kind of this chase or, or just changing the way we think about things. You know, maybe we thought we knew something and then you get data and you're like, oh, about that and so kind of you know always answering these questions this pursuit of knowledge has been one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about science and passionate about conservation oh awesome would you like for people to find you on social media or like follow you on whatever your whatever sort of platforms you're using yeah so I am pretty active on twitter my handle is chacker 414 and I also have a website that kind of goes through a lot more of my research interests and different projects working on and things like that. And that is Sharhacker, C-H-A-R-H-A-C-K-E-R dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. When I get a real job, maybe I'll pay for the domain name so I don't need the free Weebly on there. But for now, <laughs> listen, it uh, works. <laughs> so those are the best places to find me and kind of keep up with what's going on and what I'm doing. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Yes, I had so much fun. This has been just amazing. I think I've learned a lot. And I think you brought some information to me that I had never thought about brought up some questions that I had never even considered. So that's, that's really cool and very exciting. So um, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And we'll be cheering you on as you complete your your time in your PhD. Thank you. No problem. All right, we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye.